as you grow and as you find out your course, I don't think you have to just do one thing. I just think that you have to develop the expertise in one or a few areas so that you can choose to pursue those areas in various ways that you want. You're listening to Your Financial Planner Now What, the podcast to help you fast track your career by bringing you meaningful conversations on topics that influence new financial planners, their careers, and the lives of their clients. Welcome back for episode 89 with Jeffrey Levine. Jeff is a CPA and CFP professional that believes it's important to become a true expert in your field. To do that, it's important to not just engage with information, but to surround yourself with quality mentors. Jeff learned this firsthand by having people who are willing to guide and mentor him. It's a big key to learning as much as you can and being the best advisor you can be. Straight ahead, Hannah and Jeff discuss becoming an expert in your field, growing a successful advisory practice, and figuring out what to focus on to stay true to your professional goals. Today's podcast is brought to you by Signature Investors. Signature is a national network of independent advisory firms committed to developing the next generation of financial advisors and creating sustainable businesses to serve clients and their families for years to come. Signature's advisor team model provides a blueprint for establishing a team, including various defined career paths from internships to lead advisor positions. To download this blueprint, visit adviceteams.com forward slash FPA and learn how to start building your team today. Well, thanks for joining us today, Jeff. Yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I'm so excited to have you on. So you have had quite an interesting career that doesn't necessarily line up with a lot of, um, I guess, traditional financial planners. Uh, you worked at Ed Slot um, and Company, working, you know, the America's IRA expert. Can you tell us what that was like working for kind of, a, I mean, just that large brand and kind of what your role was within that? Sure. Uh, you know, it's it's funny. You're right. Life really takes you in some really funny directions at times. My my goal growing up was never to be in the financial planning industry or financial advice or to be a CPA or a CFP. Um, but through a series of really odd occurrences and just happenstance, uh, I ended up working with Ed Slot and Company. And it started out really just as a um, an opportunity to to learn and to contribute and to be someone on the team who was really doing a lot of grunt work at the time. You know, a lot of research, a lot of writing up of uh, tax court cases, and diving into code sections and doing the background work. And it really taught me at a at an early age the importance of really putting everything you have into a particular area and becoming a specialist in that area. Uh, one of the things that struck me uh, was, I think it was probably my second year with Ed Slot and Company. I must have been about 26 or 27. An attorney actually came to uh, to meet with us in the office, meet, meet with me in the office. And we didn't do a lot of consultations with the public. Most of it was B2B with other advisors and other professionals in the financial industry. Uh, but occasionally we did what we called these IRA consultations and charged $500 for up to an hour's worth of time. So whether it took five minutes or whether it took the full 60 minutes, it was $500. And the reason for that, uh, you know, Ed always said, well, we spend the time to learn this stuff so that we can answer a question quickly. We shouldn't be penalized for our really deep knowledge, right? It's just because we can answer that off the cuff doesn't make it any less of a difficult question. So this attorney came into the office and we, I could see as soon as I walked out to greet him, you know, he kind of had this look on his face. He had driven actually four hours to come down and meet. And I could see he was just like, oh, my God, I'm here to meet with this, you know, 20-year-old kid who 
doesn't know anything. Why am I doing this? Why? And, and you know, we, we could really sense it. So we promised him, we said, listen, if, if I cannot answer your questions at the end of this, I promise we're, we're not going to bill you. Um, and by the time he walked out, you know, he was, he was apologizing. I'm so sorry. I, you know, it, uh, please forgive me. It's just that this is so complicated and you're so young. And it really taught me the value of diving deep into an area and becoming an expert because at the end of that meeting, he didn't care that I was, you know, 20 or 25 or 45 or 85. He just wanted to know that someone was competent enough to answer his questions in a way that would help him to alleviate the issue that he was dealing with and know that it was the right answer. That's really what he wanted. You know, we talk a lot about confidence with new planners and how, you know, when I talk to all these young planners, it's always how do, how do I be confident in these meetings? And, and I love your solution of just become an expert. That's it. That's, uh, you know, when you know your information, people know, you know, your information. Yes. That's, uh, you know, your confidence comes naturally because, and you love it. You want to show people like how smart you are and to tell them, oh yeah, you know, I saw that there was this, you know, this odd case from, you know, 1969, it came out and people look at you like, how do you know that? It's because you spend the time you put it in. You know, uh, right now the Olympics are going on and I, I suspect that none of those Olympians just walked in at the opening ceremonies and said, hey, I'm going to compete in this. They've been training for years at one thing to do it really, really, really well. And I think that's what a lot of new planners should do is do one thing, but do it really, really, really well. So did you always know that you wanted to be more on the technical side of the profession? No, you know, I, like I said, I, I never even wanted to really be in the profession. It was such a fluke. Um, you know, growing up, I always was planning on being a doctor from the time I was two to the time I was 21. And then my, you know, my last years in college, I uh, just decided I wanted to go in a different way. And I really wasn't sure what I was going to do. And ultimately, I decided, hey, I'm going to become a financial planner. Uh, now, Hannah, there's actually one thing that I don't know that you know um, about me, which which is kind of interesting um, and kind of relates to all of this. My mother uh, is actually the managing partner of Ed Slot and Company. She ah. is, yeah. So she's not a technical person at all. She doesn't know anything about the tax code. If you ask her about her finances, she'll say, "I don't know." Ask my son. Um, but she's a great, great, great businesswoman, and she's excellent with relationships. So I have known of Ed and known Ed Slot and Company since. I was a you know a young kid. I remember at 11 years old, I think I worked in his office, uh, and his father was still alive at the time, is also a CPA, and I worked during holiday break. In fact, I think uh, it was probably the uh, the February break that we're close to now. And um, at the end of the week, I'd worked in there for the whole vacation because my mom had no one to babysit me. His father came over and gave me a hundred dollar bill. And uh, my mom promptly ripped it out of my hand and gave it back to his father and said, you can't give him $100. What are you? And what are you nuts? And he said, no, he's going to learn the value of hard work under my watch. So, you know, I had grown up in just around this and I'd heard this. I remember even as a young kid when Ed was first doing local radio, uh, my grandfather and I would sit by the radio just to make sure that if there weren't enough questions asked at the time. We could always call in and be a question, uh, you know, for him. So it, it goes back many, many, many years. And you know, when you hear something so many times, it just becomes ingrained in you. So my, uh, you know, my typical line that I joke around with people is like, "I knew how to roll over before I knew how to roll over." <laughs> uh, it was 
a really, really young uh, exposure to this. So after deciding not to be a doctor, I said, I'm going to become a professional financial planner. I mean, I I see Ed working with all these wonderful advisors. I want to help people just like they help people. So like many of your listeners, many other advisors in this field, um, I, I went and I did some research and I tried to find what was the best company at the time offering training. And I went there and, you know, the first week was fantastic. It was rah, rah, we're going to help people. Uh, the second time we went during the second week, you know, one visit per week. The second week was um, one of the best motivational lectures I've ever heard in my life uh, called 212 Degrees. Are you familiar with it? I'm not. Okay. So I'm a science nerd. Right? Even though I'm not a doctor or didn't go down the science path, I still am a science nerd at heart. So this really appealed to me. The whole idea behind it was, uh, you know, basically water, uh, summing up an hour discussion in, you know, 30 seconds, basically water from 32 degrees to 211 degrees Fahrenheit goes from being cold water to hot water. And there's a lot of energy being put into that system, but nothing's really changed. And if you were to just put in a little bit more energy, just one fraction more, uh, you know, amount of energy into that system, all of a sudden you go from 211 degrees to 212 degrees and the water turns from water to steam. And now we can power locomotives and send ships across oceans and, you know, lift things with steam power. And, you know, the whole concept of it was that you could be putting in all this effort to something and you think you're just giving it everything and you're not seeing any results. And maybe you get frustrated, but maybe it was just that last little bit that you could have put in. And all of a sudden you would have seen everything happen for you. And it's just always stuck with me all these years. I've said, am I at 211 degrees or is there something else that I could be doing to get to that 212th degree to see the results I want? So that was great. Um, The third week was uh, a discussion about life insurance, which is fine. If you're going to be an advisor, you got to know the tools of your trade. But by week four, it was the classic, hey, bring in a list of everybody you know and let's see how much financial you know, product, we can push down their throats as quickly as possible. Now, that's not, of course, how they were to do it. It was, we're going to help people and your friends and your family and the friends of your family. And, uh, but I, you know, I had like this crisis of conscience. I'm not a, I'm I'm not a salesy guy. I can't, uh, I, I just, I couldn't do it. And more than anything, being in the unique position that I was growing up, I said, how could I possibly sit down across somebody now, look them in the eye and say, give me your money when I literally know hundreds of other advisors who are way more qualified than I am. So I got really frustrated and I did something I never do. I just said, I can't do this. I'm not going to do it. And again, life works in mysterious ways. Um, Ed Slot and Company was putting on a a technical program and they were short-staffed, so they needed help. So, of course, I I fly in and I'm telling this exact same story to a group of financial advisors I know just, again, from growing up around them. And lo and behold, there's an advisor at a table behind me and he overhears everything. Hey, Jeff. Um, The next day he comes up to me. Hey, Jeff, listen, I work in a CPA firm down in Florida and it's one of the largest CPA firms in South Florida. And we do the financial planning for this firm. How would you like to come down and essentially be my junior? And you don't have to go out there and you know hunt for clients or whatnot. We have enough of volume coming in as it is. You can just learn the business under me. You'll sit in on my meetings, et cetera. And I was like, wow. 
this is exactly what I wanted. I wanted to learn. I wanted to apprentice. I wanted to, to become an expert before I, you know, I sat down with someone and said, trust me with your life savings. So I jumped at the opportunity. I ended up moving to, to Florida. And after about a year and a half or so in that position, um, it was an unbelievable opportunity. I learned a lot. But at the end of the day, it just wasn't the right fit. So I was going to go off on my own. And I just I didn't know what to do. I'm in my mid-20s. I, you know, how do I start a practice? Which way do I go? So I called up Ed and Ed says, you know, I don't know that he's hiring, but I have a good friend down in Florida or someone I know. He's a, you know, high, high, you know, high quality professional, been in the business for years. Why don't you go see him? I bet you he can give you some tips about starting your planning practice. So I make the call. And I spoke to this advisor and he says, absolutely. Any friend of Ed's is a friend of mine. I'm happy to meet you. We just can't do it tomorrow because I have a book signing. Why don't, um, why don't we meet the following morning? Okay, sounds great. And uh, that was the plan. And then right before he hung up, I asked a question that without a doubt changed the, the direction of my life, changed the course of my career path, et cetera. Uh, I said to him, you know, do you mind if I come to your book signing? I'd love to buy a copy of your book and meet you. And, you know, really it was my way of saying, you know, thank you for taking an interest in me. Let me take an interest in what you're doing as well. So the next evening I went to his book signing. I introduced myself. I bought a copy of his book. He signed it. I went home that night. And then I I thought to myself, you know, what, what can I do to show this guy that I am really serious? So I decided I would stay up all night and read his book cover to cover so that I could go in the next morning and talk to him about it. Um, and, and it was a great book. It's still on my bookshelf. In fact, I'm just turning around now to take a peek at it. it it's, a, it's an awesome, awesome, awesome book for, uh, you know, for financial advice. But there was this one problem. It had about three or four really esoteric IRA mistakes. And I didn't know what to do because this guy's <laughs> doing me a favor, right? He's, he's going to give me free advice and take some of his really valuable time to come sit with me, somebody he's never met, never heard of. Do I look at him and say, thank you so much. By the way, there are mistakes in your book and uh, you're a top advisor and I don't have anything to, you know, to hold my hat on. I'm just telling you you're wrong. Uh, of course not, right? I could never do that. So I called up Ed and I said, what do you think I should do? And you know, he said to me, no, 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 this guy, there's no way there's mistakes in this book. It's not possible. I know him. He's you know, a top advisor, been in the business you know, 20, 30 years. I said, Ed, I've been listening to you for for a long time. I'm pretty sure I'm right. He says, no, no, can't be. In fact, I know the editor of the book. They would never let a mistake go by. Ed, I'm faxing you the pages. Humor me and take a look, would you? So I fax him the pages and 10 minutes he calls back. Uh, 10 minutes later, he calls back. He says, son of a gun. You're right. How did you know that? And that's what I said to him. I said, I have been listening to you all my life. Doesn't everybody know this? Like to me, it was, you know, the stuff that was, you know, like one plus one is two, you, you know, these things. And he was like, no, this is, this is really kind of technical stuff. So long story, uh, which this was already, but to shorten it up, he, uh, you know, he said, come to New York, I want to talk to you. And it turned into a job offer to start doing some grunt work. And he said, you know, clearly you've got a mind for this and a talent for this. And how'd you like to come work with me? And whenever there's somebody that's the top in the country at anything and they say, would you like to work with me? Your answer should always be yes. I don't care what it is. They're the best garbage men. I'm going to go work with them for a while because I want to learn how to be the best at whatever I can be. 
So I packed up and uh, and that was that. And after a while, I ended up moving back to New York, and uh, that's where I am now. It's where my practice is, and and uh, you know, it was a, and it was an unbelievable opportunity to learn uh, a lifetime's worth of work in a really condensed period because there we weren't getting the easy questions. We were getting everybody's hardest questions. So you have to learn these things really, really, really quickly. So it was awesome. And I'll always be grateful for the opportunity of working there. So I have to ask with the advisor who got it wrong, did you ever tell him that he got it wrong? Ed actually called him before I went in and uh, he said, you know, you're not going to believe this, but he's actually kind of smart. And uh, and that was kind of the, the, you know, the foray. He told me when, uh, when we met, he said Ed had called him and and that was it. Yeah. But I I couldn't, I couldn't possibly bring that up. I would have looked like such a jerk at the time, but it was, uh, I, I mean, really, and it is a great, great, great book. And when I say esoteric, I mean, these are really mundane things. And unless you're nose deep in the tax code, you probably have no business knowing but, um, you know, everybody has their unique ability. Mine is you sing a song twice and I know all the lyrics. So having heard Ed speak about it many times, it was, again, it was just ingrained in there. It was by osmosis. I just, I just picked that up. And so, um, it was, uh, it was just an unbelievable learning experience for that time. And again, it, it really changed the course of my life because when people find out, oh, your mother is the managing partner of Ed Slot and Company, the first thing they think about actually is, Haha, yeah, you have a job because mommy works there. Um, and in fact, that was a big concern for me. It was a real big concern. When, when I came back to New York and I sat down with Ed and he, uh, he offered me the position, I, I said, you know, that's great, but I, I have two thoughts. One is I really love financial planning. I love that interaction one-on-one with clients and that same sense of satisfaction of uh, – you know, someone saying, you know, thank you, you've helped me. You know, that was the thing that drove me more than anything was seeing that look on someone's face where they were so concerned and then all of a sudden they understood that they were going to be okay or that there were things we could do to improve on their situation or to protect them against, um, you know, potential hazards. And they just felt relaxed and calm. And that sense of satisfaction, I, I, I said, I have a hard time giving that up. And he was very, very fair about it. He said, listen, you know, if you're going to write for us or research, I don't care if you do it at three in the afternoon or three at night, as long as you get it done, done well and done on time. So if you want to continue to, you know, kind of do financial planning on, I hate to say on the side, because basically for the entire time I worked at Ed Slot and Company, I worked like 90 hours a week because I was doing two full-time jobs. Um, but if you want to continue doing that as well, go for it. And so I did. But my other issue was I said to him, I don't want to work somewhere where everybody looks and says, you only have a job because mommy works there. And, uh, you know, his answer was, was, was true. Um, but I took it as a challenge. He said, you're going to have to know twice as much and be twice as smart to get half the credit as anybody else who works here because of that. And I just took it on as a challenge. I said, all right, so be it. I, uh, let's, let's roll. And, uh, and that, and that was what led to the next, I think, eight, nine years of my life. And so you were building a firm while working full-time with Ed Slot, is that right? Yeah. You know, building, I certainly wasn't uh, ignoring a firm, but building is a tough word for me to use because I wasn't really out there actively marketing in the sense that a lot of other advisors are. It was really very soft, you know, word of mouth, uh, the occasional, you know, client that came in. It was, um, you know, since I've left Ed Slot and Company now, and, and started to focus more on uh, my advisory practice. You know, I, I would say that now I'm really building something. There, it was more of um, 
you know, I guess it really depends on your definition of building. It, it got a lot of time, um, but it, it it was more in the running and working of the business. And I didn't uh, I didn't always have an administrative assistant or staff at the time that uh, you know were partners like I do now. So I was doing a lot of that stuff myself, and that was a necessity because my hours were all over the place. Where I would be traveling with Edslot and Company for for teaching or, or, or doing things. So it really was difficult at the time to, uh, you know, to, to, to get to train someone else to help me with some of those tasks. So it was a challenging time for me. And, uh, and, and because of that, I never wanted to take on too much and really go out there and let's say open the floodgates. And now I can't serve all these clients by myself and do my Edslot and company job. So it was, it was growing, but it was kind of growing really like ultra organically, I would say. And what made you take the jump from and leave Ed Slot and company and start your own. I mean, not start your own, you already had it, but really dive full steam ahead into, into your own practice. Well, I was very fortunate in that um, when I got into the space I, I, and when I had that the situation, when I left the other firm in Miami, you know, most people would have to kind of roll up under somebody or they may have to go to a large firm. I was able to kind of call in a favor, if you will, and start out as a you know at an independent broker dealer in essentially my own branch with no advisor, rather no clients and no existing revenue. Basically, someone said, "Hey, you know, he's a smart kid; he'll do the right thing. You know, give him a chance," and they did, which is unusual for you know an independent broker dealer because why are they going to you know take on the risk of someone when there's really no corresponding revenue? So. You know, my first year was a, a pretty successful year um, as a, uh, you know, going the independent route. And, and I really then hovered kind of level for, for the next six or seven years, again, because I wasn't really, you know, wasn't really focusing on, on, on growing it so much. It was just as it was kind of coming in. Um, and ultimately, I decided to make a change of, you know, back in 2015, uh, because I, I just felt a change was in order. I wanted to to, to really expand the practice and, and team up with some other individuals. And so I, I ended up switching broker-dealers, but very quickly I, I realized something that I probably knew in my heart but just wasn't ready to admit, which was it, it just wasn't the right space for me. I'd already transitioned most of my business into the advisory space before um, and really didn't do too much in the brokerage side. But I, I really thought that the advisory side was was for me, but I didn't want to build my own advisory firm. It just seemed unmanageable. And at the time, I was still working with that slot and company, and I was concerned that if I became an employee somewhere else or part of another advisory team, you know, it would be very challenging to serve two masters who demanded my time on an ongoing basis. When it was my own practice, it was me versus Ed Slot and Company. But if I had two essentially employers, it would have been, I think it would have been very, uh, very difficult, if not impossible. So I, I just ultimately, I decided to, to, you know, to leave the broker dealer space, it just wasn't worth it. And as much of a challenge as it would be to, to start putting together an advisory practice from scratch and go through the SEC registration process, and, and all of that, you know, from soup to nuts. And uh, that's what I did in, in, in 2016 with uh, someone I had actually met down in Florida um, while I was working down there initially. We 
became very good friends. We always wanted to work together. He's kind of the the yin to my yang. We enjoy doing the polar opposite of things in uh, in the financial planning spectrum, and we're good at different things in in the spectrum. So it was really a very uh, seamless partnership, and probably would have happened much earlier if we weren't always at you know, odd points in our life where I was moving back to New York or he was having kids or I was having kids. It was just the timing was never there. And then ultimately it was, and, and, and it took off, it took off really quick. And, um, I was really left with a tough choice. You know, it was, it was, it was very demanding to, to have both jobs, if you will, full time. And so in, uh, June of 2017, you know, Ed and I talked and, you know, it just became apparent that, you know, Ed really needed someone to do what I was doing and only be doing that. And I had other interests. You know, I really do enjoy the planning. I still love speaking. I still travel to speak. And I, I love business to business consulting and working with other advisors and helping them as well. I love writing. I still do a ton of it. Um, I love reading and researching. When the tax code came out, the new tax law, I think I sent out like 200 tweets in the first, uh, first day or something like that. I was, you know, I love pouring through and learning new things, but it just, it just couldn't be with Ed Slot and Company anymore. I needed to have more control over all aspects of my life. So it was time. And, and they've since uh, moved on and, and brought in some new talented people there. And, uh, you know, I think it's been, it's been the best thing that, uh, that I ever could have done for, for myself, my practice, and my family. It's given me more time with them. And, and that's been really important to me as well. Oh, that's great. And, and what I like about your story is that you know, sometimes people get in jobs and hope to stay there the rest of their lives. And sometimes there's just a natural point where it's better for both parties if you just move on. And it's a really healthy and good thing. It is. It is. And you know what? I, I didn't expect it. And and I think a lot of people were caught off guard because I would go places and, and, and you know, obviously it, it changed somewhat from place to place. But the standard introduction was like, and here's the heir apparent to Ed Slot, um, which was certainly never words that I used, um, but they were used quite frequently to as like the introduction, right? Like, how do you introduce you? Well, but you can say whatever you want. Okay. And that's how they would introduce me. Um, and, uh, you know, so a lot of people really thought that I was going to be there again, especially because I have family working there as well, you know, and, and, and Matt, as the managing partner, it was just kind of assumed like, oh, he'll, he'll be here to, you know, to take over one day. And, uh, you know, perhaps if I uh, didn't really enjoy financial planning as much as I did, maybe that would have been a possibility. But I, I can't really imagine my life without working with some of the amazing people I work with on the client side. I mean, I just, I just love that sense of satisfaction of helping someone to, to have that peace of mind and to know that they're going to be okay. I don't, there's just no substitute for that for me. I don't have to do it all the time, but I don't think I could do it none of the time. So that's really interesting. I mean, hearing hearing you say all that, you chose to start your own practice instead of potentially taking over Ed Slot and Company someday. I mean, that's that's crazy. I mean, hearing that. Yeah, I mean, maybe to some people, but um, you know what? I, there's no guarantees in life and it's not like there was a contract in place that said, "Hey, when, you know, when something happens, you're going to be here. It's just, you know, I was the younger person on, on, on the staff who had the, the knowledge and there wasn't, uh, you know, a, a clear second person. And yeah, again, I, had, you know, I, I'd taken over a lot of the, the speaking responsibilities and some of the things that, um, that I had done previously, he had, you know, passed on to me over the years and I had taken on, you know, much greater responsibilities within the firm of higher level tasks and so forth. But, you know, there were certainly other 
very, very talented and super knowledgeable people that uh, that I worked with there for many, many, many years. You know, I, I you know twice the amount of IRA information in my brain, um, and uh, you know, it just was a matter of where are you at that point in life. You know, yeah. it, it's um, you have to be. It has to be the right time, the right position, and the right place, and it just it just didn't line up. Yeah. Well, and, you know, we talk about succession plans a lot on this podcast in various places and your life has to line up with that. There has to be a larger narrative around that. And it sounds like your larger narrative was leaning towards your own practice or partnering with somebody. Yeah. You know, I, I, I love doing, I love having a little bit of, of both part, you know, speaking really excites me. And, and I think that if I were to, to say, what is it that I am the best at? What is it that like, what is it that I do better than anything else in my life. It's taking really complex, really mundane things and making them simple to understand, but even more important than that, fun to listen to, you know, an, an exciting presentation, something that's not boring because no one wants to listen to someone yap about taxes for eight hours when they sound like, you know, Ben Stein from the, you know, dry eyes, clear eyes commercial uh, that, you know, like dry eyes, try clear eyes. And you just, want to fall asleep. And that's the typical tax seminar that advisors or CPAs go to. So I think that's a, you know, an area where I want to continue to focus and, and, and build out. And, and I really enjoy doing that. But again, I, I could never leave entirely, at least at this point, my individual clients. I love that too. So I don't, I don't think people have to pick just, you know, as you grow and as you find out your course, I don't think you have to just, um, just do one thing. I just think that you have to develop the expertise in one or a few areas so that you can choose to pursue those areas in various ways that you want. One thing that you said that you do, um, I don't know, a lot might be not the right word, uh, but is a lot of B2B consulting. Mm -hmm. And so what does that look like for you? What are you consulting on? Uh, so in the past, when I was with that Slotten Company, that was one of my primary roles. We had a group of about 400 advisors that trained on an ongoing basis. And they essentially, as part of their membership fee, if you will, had carte blanche access to the Ed Slotten Company uh, technical team. So it was me and generally, uh, depending upon you know, what year you were talking about, anywhere from two to three other individuals. And we would be responsible for answering all the questions that came in. And they came in by phone, they came in by email, they came in by message board. Um, and that was, you know, that was one aspect of it. And then we also had advisors who weren't affiliated with that group who just needed a, um, you know, additional help on uh, on certain complex matters, oftentimes for their client, you know, they would be working with a client who was either already an existing client, or they would be trying to uh, win a new client relationship. And as part of their value proposition, you know, they would essentially say, "Here, I'm gonna I'm gonna pay for this consultation with this firm because this is an area where we need to bring in experts." And so that's kind of translated. Um, I still do that to uh, to a degree. Uh, it's um, it's admittedly probably the smallest portion of my business makeup at this point, you know, speaking, uh, makes up a significant portion. Uh, my financial advisory practice makes up a significant portion. Uh, I also run, um, and serve as the, uh, the technical content expert for the horse's mouth savvy IRA planning program. So that's a, another area in which I focus. And then the business to business at this point has really, uh, has taken a backseat just because it's, it's not something that I've, I've pushed as heavy because it's not scalable. You know, it's um, it, it, it's at least not until I have, let's say, a, a whole crew of other 
people like me working with me uh, in the technical space. So it's just not a scalable thing day one because it's everything has to be delivered one-on-one. It's not one-to-many. And so I've tried at least at this point outside of my financial advisory practice to focus on the one-to-many things that I can do. So you just went through a whole list. I mean, that sounds like two or three full-time jobs of everything that you're doing right now. So how do you manage having so many different roles um, with various places? Well, it's something that I've had to become better at, to be honest. You know, managing time and being super organized isn't something that comes natural to me. And I, I freely admit that. I, you know, I would even go so far as to say there are times that I really, really struggle with it. Um, it's, uh, you know, certain things that other people do, they just, you know, I, I'm amazed. Uh, there's, there's someone in my office and, um, you know, he's just the most organized human being I have ever met in my entire life. He has lists for everything and everything is categorized. And I look and I marvel and say, my goodness, I, I don't even know how to, to start with that. Um, but I've, I've really tried to, uh, to embrace three things. The first being other people. Um, you know, delegating. And that's, that's been something that I've worked on a lot lately. Um, uh, the other, the second thing is to embrace no. Um, and I'm really bad at that. I'm, I've, I think probably I pegged it one month at about 10 to 12% of the time that I was spending on a working day was actually being spent when I tracked it for a month on tasks that were not related to really any of my businesses. They were just things that I said I'd help people out with. Like, yeah, sure, I'll call the IRS for you for that one and see if I can help take care of it. Just because I, I didn't want to say no. I wanted to be like the guy who says yes to everything. And so I've really tried to embrace saying no, which sounds awful, um, but it's really important. And, and I've, I've learned its importance. And then the third thing is technology. Technology has really helped me uh, to become a more organized person and to become much better at time management. And I still work a lot. You know, I still work more hours than, I, than I'd like to. Um, but I look at this really as a, a startup phase for my the next 20, 30, 40 years of my life. I, I really love what I do now. And so I don't ever envision, you know, the traditional retirement. I just think that, you know, it might, uh, I might maybe speak less or travel less, or maybe at some point I don't see as many clients, but I don't really, I don't ever imagine that traditional retirement because I don't know what I do with myself. And I love this too much. So thinking back to earlier in our conversation, you were talking about the well-respected advisor who wrote a book and there were IRA mistakes in his book. Um, and just with the, your work that you've done with so many advisors, especially speaking to younger planners, how do we how do we be sure that we're not the guy who's writing a book, guy or gal who's writing a book with mistakes in it like that? I mean, yeah. What would be your advice on that? <laughs> you know, the, the the first thing is don't. I, I mean, it's, this is going to sound like really the dumbest statement ever or the most obvious thing, but don't trust everything you read on the internet. I mean, that's the very first thing I would tell people, uh, especially for young advisors. You know, a lot of the younger advisors that I, I spoke to, you know, they're They've just grown up with the internet. They don't remember the days of, of pre-internet. Uh, and so everything is, you know, a Google click away for them. And the, Google is amazing. And there are some tremendous resources out there on, uh, you know, on the web. But just because it's there doesn't mean it's right. So what I always used to do, if there was something I was looking up, I'd always try to find, you know, someone who'd written about it from 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 a place that I would trust normally. But then I would go back and and do the background research. I would try to find, you know, the actual 
code that they referenced or the the private letter ruling that they referenced or the you know the the um, the court case that they referenced and read it for myself and make sure that I I really understood it and you know that's not going to be for everybody but you you if you focus on an area and you you become very knowledgeable at that one thing then you then you expand it just a little bit and then you expand it just a little bit more and the other thing that I would say um, is write write as much as you can uh, writing is probably the easiest way to, to to become an expert at something because when you write there's there's no hiding you know we're we're recording this podcast now and you know maybe I said something before that's not a hundred percent correct now, hopefully not but maybe I did you can excuse someone when they're kind of speaking uh, extemporaneously and they're just kind of going off the cuff and, and either answering a question or, or, or having a discussion for the mistake here or there, because sometimes our brains work, you know, our mouths don't work as fast as our brains do. But when you're writing, it's there and it's permanent. And someone's going to be able to, to print that. And 10 years later, they're going to be able to walk back to you and say, but you wrote this. And so it's, it's, um, it's kind of almost a catch 22 is how do you become you know good at writing and make sure you don't make that mistake but writing in the first place is uh is important you know doing that and starting that process and then having people check your work uh that is extremely important having people check your work and again it's not that people will make no mistakes we're 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 people we're we're not infallible we're going to make mistakes but having someone check your work is extraordinarily important um, you know, back when I was working with Ed Slot and Company, we did a blog on uh, – we blogged, I would say, usually three to four times a week on different topics. No article ever went up without at least two people looking at it first. Even if it was super easy and it was the most basic topic and we were just doing a refresher. And a lot of these articles were written consumer-focused, not necessarily for the advisor. So they were fairly simple at times. Some of them were more complex, but a lot of them were very simple. And even those always had a second technical expert on the team look at the article before it went out. And you know what? You'd be surprised uh, you know, the things that you find, you, you, you know, you, you're putting dates on there for required beginning dates and RMDs and you just, you type a number wrong, you type a year wrong and you've written it and you've read your own work so many times that you just read what you think is there, but what's not actually on the page. And you know what I'm talking about, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, you just, you know, you read, you, you, you see what you want to see as opposed to what's actually on the page. So, you know, having someone check your work and, and to, to be humble, you know, and to, to be able to accept criticism and to, to not look at it as being negative, but to be, you know, to look at it as, as, as improving you, to making you better. Uh, and then I would throw one other thing out there. It's to, to invest in yourself. And I think, you know, uh, you, you've got a wonderful podcast. And I, I think what you're doing to help new planners come into the business, Hannah, is just phenomenal because no one should have to come into the business and be forced to, you know, sell, 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 and hopefully stick around long enough so that they can learn something, right? I, I always say, you know, you should. Uh, you should learn before you earn and not the other way around. So I think, I think what you're doing is incredible. And this is a great start. Those who spend the time to listen to this podcast each week are, are probably upping their game. But, you know, to take it a step further, like if you're if you want to focus on, let's say, working with business owners, go out there and find, a, you know, a course that specializes in dealing with business taxation or succession planning or, you know, 
take your game to the next level and spend the money on education. It is by far the best investment that, and you know what, of all the things that Ed Slot and company, my time there taught me, it was to, to make sure you invest. You know, some, some places have um, some tax services to get you updates on the latest tax developments. We had four of them. Uh, when there was a new book that came out and, it, and there was a subtle change from one year to the next, you probably didn't need the new book. We got new books every year to make sure we always had, you know, the, sh- the, the best material. This was this is like a carpenter, uh, you know, going to work with a hammer that's, you know, not quite really attached. You, you got to have the tools of your trade. You got to build out the resources around you in order to provide that high level of guidance that today's consumer demands. You've talked at several points about being an expert and how, you know, really find what you can specialize in and be the best in that. So my question for you, and again, it's a little bit of a rhetorical well, question for how would you advise young planners as well? But how did you know that you were an expert and how did you know that you had enough to offer clients before starting out on your own or really providing those services on your own? Wow. It's deep. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, don't know that there's ever a moment where you say to yourself, you know, I am an expert. I don't even know that. I don't even know that I would say that today because I'm still learning things every single day, you know, every single day. I think, you know, becoming an expert is uh, like the end of a rainbow that you can never quite get to. Right. I mean, you, you can become as, as close as there is, but there's always something more to learn. There's always something new. And, and literally every day I learn. So I can't think of the last day that came, you know, that went by where I, something on the technical side of things, I didn't pick up some little nuance that was not known to me or known to me or, you know, beforehand. So I don't know that there's a time where you could just strike out and say, Hey, I've done it. I'm, I'm here. I'm ready to go. But you build up a, a, essentially a, uh, an expert, bank, if you will, right? You build up the, the street cred. And over time, it, it, you know, it's not an overnight process. It's about, you know, I'll give you the best example. You asked, how did I know when I became an expert? Again, I, I'm not going to use that word, but let's just, let's, the, the, the time when I was most surprised, I said, all right, I, I might know what I'm doing. I needed to look up something and I couldn't I just, you know, I, I couldn't remember what it was. So I went and I Googled it and I can't remember what the exact topic was, but I went and Googled it and an article came up and I was reading it and I was like, wow, you know, this is, this is pretty good. And I finally finished it and I got to the end. I'm like, wait a second. I think I remember this. And it was something I had written like eight years ago uh, that was you know <laughs> picked up on another site that I hadn't authorized. They basically copied my work and pasted it onto their website. Ooh. Uh, yeah, not really great from a copyright uh, point of view. But I looked at it and it's like, oh, yeah, I, I wrote that. Okay. And, and that's when I was like, okay, when you can start Googling yourself for, for technical information, then uh, then that's not, a, that's not a bad sign. But you know what? It, it's, it's a process. It, it's a process. When I, when I first started out, I could answer, let's say, 90% of the questions. But that meant I had to ask either Ed or someone else on the technical staff to help me out with the other 10%. And then maybe year two, it was 95% and, you know, 99%. And, and along with becoming a specialist or an expert in any field, you know, comes knowing when something is beyond your scope. Um, and I still run across that today. And, and every planner will and every advisor will and every CPA will. You know, there comes a time when it's not your area of expertise or it's just 
you know, uh, above your pay grade, so to speak. And the worst thing you could do is to try to extend yourself because that's when you go and, and you make those mistakes. You know, you reach and you don't want to say no because no one likes to say no. Uh, but you're so much better off telling someone, listen, I, I can help you with all this other stuff. But this one thing you really need to go see this attorney for or this CPA for this other advisor, for whatever it is. Um, but that's, I think, a really important thing. Uh, and, and as an expert, the last thing you want to do is make a mistake because then that calls into question your credibility as an expert. So much better to defer and put something off and to say, um, you know, I, I just I can't do this and to not make the mistake than to try to take it on and and, uh, you know, just not be able to fulfill that promise. So you've mentioned several times about writing and writing seems to be <laughs> maybe a difficult skill for a lot of planners. Um, it, it's been kind of interesting. Um, I've been talking with professors and they're actually making students write blogs in their college classes now as they prepare to enter the financial planning profession. Um, so I think that's kind of an interesting angle on it, yeah. but how do you, um, so number one is, should it just be expected that financial planners can write or, and then also how do you, I mean, I guess it's practice, but how do you get good at writing? I think that you don't have to be a great writer. I think that you just have to be good at conveying a message because there are, are a lot of different ways that you can convey that message. You know, you can write and type, um, but, uh, you know, you might use a program like Dragon Dictation, let's say. And just go out there and just talk, talk into, you know, tell, uh, talk as if you were talking to your client and maybe that's your blog. Maybe your blog isn't the, you know, the, uh, and thus, therefore this is, you know, uh, maybe your blog is the super conversational blog, or maybe you just never write at all. You write three sentences to caption the video that you do and you record a video on your iPhone, you know, once a week about a, a topic that's uh, of interest to you or that you want to express, a, you know, some information on. There's, there's a lot of different ways in which you convey it. I like writing um, because people tend to be able to keep that writing. You know, I, I think of myself and what I do, and um, I don't know how many of your users uh, or rather listeners use Evernote or whether you use Evernote or, or a tool like Evernote, um, but I, I had kind of created my own Evernote without knowing what Evernote was. And then about two years ago, someone came to me and said, why don't you use Evernote? And it was like revolutionary. It saved me so much time building my own essentially information library. And I store all these articles that I, I want to go back to at some point or that I want to um, or that I want to be able to reference by tagging them with keywords and so forth. And, and you can do that relatively easily today. And I can pull up that article anywhere. I can pull it up on my cell phone. I can pull it up on my computer. Uh, you can't necessarily do that quite as easily with the video medium. So I really love writing. I love video too, but I love writing um, because I think it's it's one of the best ways to get a message out there permanently. And people like to to read things more than once on the technical stuff. You know, they want to read that that passage again because it's complicated and they need to make sure that they understand it. And when you're listening to uh, the audio or listen, watching a video, it, it's not as convenient to just, you know, drag it back. You do, of course. But um, uh, so there but there are a lot of different ways to, to, to get that message out. And to, to be a writer without necessarily having to, to write well, I think it definitely helps. And, and there are classes out there and 
Um, in fact, there are uh, there are people who teach classes just on writing and blogging for financial advisors. So if if someone wants to become better at it, maybe you're never going to be great. Um, you know, I don't think I'm ever, 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 ever going to be great at organization, right? I am. I've gotten much better, but that's like my Achilles heel. Is I'm not naturally an organized person. I have to work hard to organize myself and use tools and, and, and read about it and take best practices because it just doesn't come naturally to me. Um, maybe writing doesn't come naturally to someone else, but if they work hard at it, I'm pretty confident that, uh, you know, and like anything else, practice uh, makes closer to perfection. Not, not perfect, but it, it certainly gets you closer there. So that, that would be my, uh, you know, my, my advice. And don't be afraid, you know, put it out there. People, you'd be amazed. And one more tip too. Um, one, one last thought on that that I think is really important. There is rarely an original thought today. Um, you know, when a new law comes out or there's a new case, then, you know, obviously everybody's kind of working on it simultaneously. And there's almost like a rush to be first to print the, um, you know, the latest stuff, which is why I like Twitter so much. You can get out in 140 or 280 now characters, you know, bits of information on things and almost be like first to market on the new information, which I think is awesome. But um, the... Other than that, there really is no inform, you know, like new thought. So if you are writing on something, I would read five other articles on the same topic that you're writing about. And obviously, you don't want to plagiarize, you don't want to steal anybody's information, but see how something is presented. Maybe it, it kicks a thought in your mind as to how you would organize it. A lot of times, I read something and I say, you know, this was really great, but I think I would have understood it much better if it was presented in this order or this format as opposed to the way this person chose to present it. And so then when I write it, I'll present it in, in that manner. And I think that, um, you know, that can be a helpful tip for those who aren't really confident about their writing, uh, you know, either. Well, and I like your point of, you know, I think everyone would agree that to be a good advisor, especially if you're client facing, you have to be a good communicator and writing is just a way to communicate. Yeah, just one communication medium. I mean, there are, um, I, I know a uh, advisor in, I believe he's in Nevada. He's a young advisor and he doesn't write at all. I mean, when I say not write at all, I'm sure he actually sends emails from time to time, but almost everything he does is like a video message to his clients. They're all younger millennials. He doesn't work with, um, he does work with some older individuals, but they all have to be tech savvy. That's kind of like his, his rule, his thing. And he answers everything by video because it takes him way less time to write. He doesn't really like to write. He doesn't enjoy it. He says he's not very good at it. Um, so he just sends video clips to everybody. And when someone sends him an email, he answers it with a video message. When, uh, you know, when he wants to make a phone call or update a client, he does it via video. So uh, that's what works for him. And uh, hopefully, you know, everybody finds what works well for them. One of the things that you've talked about is, you know, researching and researching deeply um, going, you said, you know, reading court cases or reading the tax code or things like that. Can you talk a little bit more about that? I, I when I've talked to other advisors, it seems like that kind of in-depth research feels very overwhelming and feels very um, out of reach for them. I think that that's going to change over time. I think it's going to, I think technology is going to force that to change over time because the traditional bounds where a advisor uh, or where a client would find an advisor are not going to continue to be the same. For instance, in, in the past, the primary limiting factor to the, you know, to the advisors that you could work with was generally a geographic location. 
right? I mean, you, you wanted to be able to go and, and see your advisor and sit down in their office. And there are still a lot of people who want that face-to-face -face interaction. But clients of all ages, you know, whether they be young millennials or or boomers or even older, have gotten increasingly comfortable with uh, digital communication or, you know, uh, doing video conferences remotely, et cetera. And so if you're not going to be a specialist, then you've got to look and say, how, like, who am I working with and why are these people working with me? And it could just be, hey, I'm the local advisor and I'm the one that's close to you and I'm kind of like your, your generalist, you know, your generalist doctor. And if you, you look, you know, generalist practitioners that are, you know, doctors, they make, they make good livings. You know, there, there's nothing wrong with that. And it's a, we need generalists. In fact, uh, we're short generalists right now, but, um, but specialists is where the money is for physicians. And I think that's going to continue to be the trend for advisors, especially as these geographic barriers continue to be broken down because I can type in, you know, IRA expert, social security expert, business succession planning expert into Google. And I'm going to look and I'm going to see who comes up on the first, you know, three pages of Google you know, today, maybe the first page of Google. And I'm going to start there if I don't really care, if I just want to go to the best at something. And a lot of people want just the best at something. So I think it, you know, advisors have to, to do a gut check, right? Like what, what is it that I want to do? Do I want to be that generalist? And uh, maybe if you're only in the business for another five or 10 years, it's not a big deal for you. But for young advisors, like, you know, for like you, like me, like I'm sure many of your listeners who are going to be around for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years or more in the practice, you know, in the profession, I think you've got to figure out what it is that you do really, really, really well, and then figure out how to become great at it. You know, not everybody's going to be lucky enough to, to fall into a situation like I did, literally, where, you know, they can study under the best, uh, you know, at something. Uh, but there's ways that you can go out and, you know, reading, you know, re I, 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 I talked to an advisor, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was four or five years ago. And he had asked a question about the, um, a, a law that basically had changed in 2002. And we're talking about this advisor now is in 2012, and he's completely, um, completely off the you know off the books for or or you know off the rails for a law that had changed a decade ago. And I said, "Don't how, how, you didn't know that?" He says, "No, I don't really like reading much." Like, how could you? Right? Like, how could you be an advisor and say like I don't like reading much? How do you not stay up to date on the latest changes and and not even the latest changes, the changes of the last decade? Uh, you know, so. You've got to be willing to put in the time and, you know, advisors build time in their calendar for, um, you know, for, for, you know, for calling clients and for, you know, a lot of, a lot of advisors time block their time. These are the times that I meet with clients. These are the times that I do phone calls. These are my networking times. I would say build in educational time into your, you know, into your practice uh, block, build in you know, uh, you know, self-improvement into that time block and take it very seriously. Don't, don't let that be the first thing to go when you're backed up on paperwork, stay the extra hour at the office and, and get it done, but put in that time, you know, for you to get better at whatever it is that you really, really, really want to do you. There is no substitute for time. The old, uh, a lot of the old advisors, 
um, that I or older advisors, or I should say older, but those have been in the profession longer, the more mature advisors, uh, you know, they, they remember the days of like dialing for dollars. Uh, in fact, you know, some, I have an advisor in my office who, uh, you know, who kind of built his initial book doing that same thing, dialing for dollars. And, and I look at it today as like, no, you know, the, the, the modern advisor is going to be, you know, learning for dollars, reading for dollars, writing for dollars, not dialing for dollars. The, the old days of you reaching out to clients uh, is really going away. This is much more a business of attraction as opposed to, you know, as opposed to reaching out to that client, you need to do something to attract them to you and make that person want to work with you as opposed to trying to convince them that they should work with you. If you were to start over, whether that means starting over in the profession, you know, year zero, mm-hmm. <laughs> ground zero, or if you were looking to, you know, start over with a firm without maybe your background or, or your um, name recognition that you already have, what would you, what, where would you start? Oh, without a doubt, I would go, I, this is, this is an easy one for me to answer because I tell almost every young person who asked me that same question, the same answer. First thing I would do is I would try while I was a student, let's say, um, is to intern as many different places as possible. Get your feet wet and just figure out what it is that you really enjoy, right? So you can find out what you're passionate about, find out what you love doing because the things that you love doing, you'll inevitably be much better at and, and, and you know than the things that you don't enjoy doing. And on top of that, uh, once you, you know, by kind of getting those things out of the way and figuring out what you want to do early on, you're kind of way ahead of a lot of other people who have to change midstream or, uh, you know, make adjustments along the way. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is if you want to become a financial planner, if you are, if that's really your goal, the thing that I would say is don't focus on money right away um, and focus on the best educational opportunity. Give up a year or two of income, if it means that. And I'm not saying that you should make nothing. I'm not, you know, I don't want people to live on bread and water. Uh, But the first job, when I went down to Miami, it was not a high paying job. For me, it was, hey, I get to learn under an advisor who, where I don't have to go out and hunt for clients. I'm going to be apprenticing and I'm going to learn everything I need to know so that when I go out on my own, I can do those same things and do them with confidence and and do a good job for my clients. And that's what I think young planners – like my my if I could apprentice, you know, a hundred young planners over my career, I don't think that'll happen. It's probably a you know too lofty of a goal. But my goodness, that would just make me feel amazing because I want more people to get into the business the right way. And to me, the right way is finding a place where you can learn, where you're not out there day one meeting with clients. It's not your, it's not your role. There's, there, you don't, you don't know enough day one. And the worst thing is when you don't know enough, um, or when you don't know what you don't know, that's even worse. And I think it was, um, Donald Rumsfeld years ago who said something like, uh, there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, the things that we know we don't know. And then there are unknown unknowns. Um, and it's those unknown unknowns that are super dangerous to advisors because you don't know when you're giving someone the wrong answer. And the only way you can really to, to resolve that is, is through experience. So I would say go out, find your local advisory firm, find your local financial planning firm. Uh, you know, if you want to be an asset manager, find your local asset management firm. 
listen, if you want to be a broker and that's what you want to do, then find a brokerage firm and, and just find someone who'll take you on and do whatever it takes to get them to say yes. Because all you want to focus on is learning from someone who's really good. That's the only thing you should focus on those first few years. The money will come. I, I, I promise you, you know, that old adage of people not making it in the business, it's because they were going out and trying to sell when they had no knowledge. Of course, they, you know, more people were bound to fail. I don't, I don't remember what the exact statistics were, but, you know, it was way more advisors fail than succeed in the business. And again, it's because you're going out there and trying to sell something that you don't even know enough about to really sell, which is you, right? You don't know your information, your knowledge, you haven't built it yet. So if you build it, you know, as corny as it is, if you build it, they will come and they being the client. So Build that educational base. The best way to do it, in my opinion, is to go out and find someone to apprentice under. And you have to entice them to do it, right? Because as the as the owner of a practice or as a, you know, let's say a, a primary financial planner, maybe they're not looking for that junior at that time. Maybe, maybe they don't want that junior. You've got to be willing to do whatever it takes, whether that's filling out the paperwork or doing, maybe staying afterwards, right? Maybe you fill an, uh, a role during the day, which is learning and sitting in with meetings with them. Uh, but when you sit in with meetings, you're not doing the other work that needs to be done. So you might have to put in longer hours afterwards or on weekends or, you know, that's the trade-off, I think, for um, for that type of opportunity to learn and to not have to come into the business and to be hawking friends and hawking family members about, you know, buying this or putting money with you and you're, you're kind of, you know, gambling on people's life livelihoods. It's just, it's just not a good way to start. Oh, great stuff there. Well, thank you for being with us, Jeff. We really appreciate it. Oh, it, it was such a privilege. And, and I really, I, I, I really wish all of your listeners the absolute best. And, you know, for those that are, are struggled or, you know, uh, who, you know, who think about, uh, you know, is this really for me? You know, just, just keep at it. There's, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it really, I, you know, you asked me what I, what would I change if I started, you know, over, not much. I, I really, I really love what I do. And if this is something you really love, if you stick with it, if you're passionate about it, you put in the time, uh, it'll work out. There are opportunities out there for you. And, uh, and, and Hannah, thank you so much for, for letting me share my story with your listeners. It was really fun. Today's podcast is brought to you by Signature Investors. Signature is a national network of independent advisory firms committed to developing the next generation of financial advisors and creating sustainable businesses to serve clients and their families for years to come. Signature's advisor team model provides a blueprint for establishing a team, including various defined career paths from internships to lead advisor positions. To download this blueprint, visit adviceteams.com forward slash FPA and learn how to start building your team today. Thanks ever so much to our listeners and to Jeff for joining us today. Be sure to tune in again next week to learn how you can incorporate purpose and value-driven planning into your practice. Thanks for listening.